encourage you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. This morning we'll be studying verses 4 to 13 together. Last week we were looking at John 1, 1 to 3, and we concluded that these verses are like a wrecking ball. And as that wrecking ball swings back and forth in our lives, it destroys our insufficient views of Jesus, shatters any and all of our functional saviors, and protects us from deifying anybody or anything but Jesus. Through these verses, we come face to face with the reality that that on many levels, we're in danger of believing in a Jesus that we've created for ourselves, one that we want to be like us. So in these first three verses, John has led us up this steep mountain and elevated Jesus to unimaginable heights. And it's from that high vantage point that John wants us to view everything that the man Jesus does while he's here on the earth. Well, let's read together verses 4 to 13. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God." The point of these verses before us this morning, I believe, is to explain what happens when the eternal Son of God breaks into the limitations of time and space. And more importantly, when he breaks into your life. This morning, whether you believe it or not, you're here this morning, and the light of Jesus is breaking into your life. The question is, how will you respond to the invasion of the eternal Son of God into your finite life. You see, it's one thing for us to agree with the rich and deep theology of verses 1 to 3, but it is an entirely different thing to have this Jesus walk into our life and to claim absolute authority over every single bit of it. You see, it's possible for us to agree with this amazing view of Jesus that John tells us about, but still not respond rightly to him. Jesus demands a response. And verses 4 to 13, we, re- we understand then that there really are only two ways of responding to him. And so our task this morning is to let the scriptures themselves be the examination piece for our hearts and help us understand how are we responding to this Jesus. In order to get us to that point of examination, I believe the text breaks down into two parts. The first part is in verses 4 and 5 and verse 9, which is Jesus, the light revealed, brings salvation. 
And then verses 10 to 13, the second part, Jesus, the light revealed, divides the world. So Jesus, the light revealed, brings salvation. Jesus, the light revealed, divides the world. Well, let's begin then by looking at verses 4 and 5 and verse 9. In the clearest way here, Jesus is described here as light. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Later on in the book of John, in chapter 8, we learn that Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And so what John is picking up here and describing Jesus as light and recording Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, is a very rich Old Testament understanding of the term light. The original readers of this book would have been Jewish people who would have had a very good understanding with how the Bible uses the word light. In the Old Testament, God promised a coming light that would bring salvation to all the nations, both Jews and Gentiles. One of the primary examples in the Old Testament of a guiding light that led to God's people receiving salvation is the Exodus account of the Israelite people in Egypt. You may be familiar with the story, but as a brief refresher this morning, let's recount the details of it. The Israelite people ended up in slavery in Egypt for a period of around 400 years. And as slaves, they were being severely mistreated by the Egyptians. And finally, we read in Exodus chapter 2 that their cry for rescue, for slavery, came up to God. In Exodus 2, then we, we hear that God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with his people. And it says there that God saw the people of Israel and he knew. The answer to their cry for help came through the person of Moses, who was set apart by God to demand the release of God's people from Pharaoh. Well, we know as the story goes that Pharaoh refused to listen to God. And then there were those ten nasty plagues that went all throughout the land of Egypt And it's finally after the last plague of death, when the death angel swept through all of Egypt, killing the firstborn males, that finally Pharaoh says to Moses, get out of here. Go. It's a wonderful release. In Exodus chapter 13, then, we read that when the Israelite people left their slavery, they were led out of Egypt by two very interesting revelations. Verses 21 and 22 of Exodus 13. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So this pillar of cloud and fire were always guiding the Israelite people taking them where they should be going, and also behind them, protecting them from the Egyptian army that was coming after them. You see, God provided protection and salvation from the enemies of God's people through a guiding light, cloud, and fire. Now fast forward then to John chapter 1. 
The account of the Israelite people may have been ringing in John's ears as he's understanding here that Jesus is the light. The account of the Israelite exodus out of their slavery provides us a biblical framework for understanding what it means for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. You see, that account of them leaving their slavery is something that is ultimately fulfilled spiritually in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that account drives us ahead. So the natural question we can ask ourselves at this point then is, well, what's similar to our circumstances that was like the Israelites' circumstances? Not in a physical way. None of us here this morning are in slavery. But in a spiritual way. What's similar to our lives spiritually to what the Israelites were going through? Romans 6 helps us understand. In Romans 6, we are taught that before Christ comes into our life, he says there that we are slaves to unrighteousness. That is that our souls have handcuffs on them. We're in the dungeon of our sin, presenting the members of our bodies as instruments of impurity and lawlessness. Before Christ, we are slaves to our sin, unrighteousness. And so like the Israelite people who needed to be released from their greatest enemies of the Egyptians, we need to be released from our greatest enemies, sin and Satan. And so when Jesus calls himself the light of the world, and John calls him the light of life, what he's saying is that Jesus is God's fulfillment of a promised salvation that was foreshadowed and promised from the very beginning of creation. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ was never plan B for God. It wasn't the second opportunity. He'd planned before creation to send Jesus as the Christ to be the one who would bring the light of God's salvation to a dark and evil world. His program of salvation is always centered on Jesus. And if we can grasp that, we see the immensity of God's love that as he breaks into creation in the person of Jesus, he was coming to a people who were in utter rebellion against him. A people who are trapped in sin. And he comes then with the keys. The keys to unlock us from our slavery to unrighteousness. It was a dark morning off the coast of North Carolina. And I remember sitting on the cold sand in that morning. And maybe you've done this before. Maybe you've sat on a cold beach before in the morning and watched the sun rise up over this vast body of water. It gives me goosebumps still today thinking about seeing that sun rise up over the horizon and realizing that I cannot escape from that rising sun. It's an incredible sight. The light cannot be ignored. It cannot be contained. The rising sun dominates everything. And its, its impact is felt across the globe. Jesus, the light revealed, brings salvation, and he too cannot be ignored. No matter how much our world wants to try to push him aside, to kind of just toss him over to the corner, 
There is something so fundamentally different about this person, Jesus, that we simply cannot ignore him. Like that rising sun off the coast, Jesus cannot be ignored. His light is so much more penetrating, so much more intense. And if he is who he says he is, then the entire universe revolves around him. The truth is, though, that this Jesus, who brings salvation, the promised Messiah, also divides the world into two major categories. And that's what verses 10 to 13 describe for us. You may remember that after Jesus was born, his parents took him into the temple, as was the Jewish custom, to be dedicated to the Lord. And Simeon is waiting in the temple, and he's waiting for salvation to be revealed. And when he sees baby Jesus, he runs over to the baby, and he scoops him up in his arms. And in Luke chapter 2, this is what we hear Simeon saying. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. In other words, that little baby that, Jesus, that Simeon is holding is going to divide the world. He will cause much division. It's exactly what happens during Jesus' time on the earth. That's exactly what happens now, today. He divides family members. He divides friendships. And he's like a sword that pierces to our own soul. Jesus, the light of the world, divides the world. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Right there in those verses, we see the first division that Jesus causes in the world. And it is among those that reject him. From verse 3, remember that this eternal son of God is the one who created the entire universe. And now that he's broken into his creation... The world that he created did not know him, did not recognize him. For the first century Jewish people, this rejection culminated in them demanding that he be crucified and rejecting this Jesus as the promised Messiah. They wanted nothing to do with him. They thought he was crazy, thought he was a lunatic. And so they sent him to the cross, rejecting him. Now, although we're not living in the first century, the reasons that they rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah are still many of the reasons why people today reject him. We're living in a pluralistic society that wants to, as fast as it can and as hard as it can, throw Jesus into the bucket labeled saviors of the world. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says coexist. And it's got all the different various symbols of the different religions. You see, we live in a culture that wants to be inclusive of all religions. We can all just get along with one another because really we all want the same thing in the end. We're just trying to make sure that we're secure on the other side of life. And so it doesn't matter how you get there. 
just as long as you're trying to get there. And so when Jesus comes along and he makes these exclusive claims that he himself is the only way to get to heaven, our culture rejects him for his radical fundamentalism. They want nothing to do with him. I think that if we kind of peeled back the layer, though, of that rejection, if we looked at it at a much deeper level, at a much more biblical level, what we would see in this rejection of Jesus as the only way to the Father is really just a way of trying to flee from him. Turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 3, maybe just one page over. In John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21, I'm not going to read them for us, but I want you to look at them while I'm speaking here because in these verses here, we really see a picture of what's going on in our hearts when we try to flee from God, when we reject Him. Verse 19 clearly says that when we run from the light, it is because we love our sin, we love our darkness our evil, sinful ways. That seems like kind of a strange reaction, doesn't it? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But yet what do people do? Run away, hide in the shadows, away from his love. The reason for doing so is because Jesus' light is so pervasive, so dominating, that his light actually exposes our evil and our sin for what it really is. Rebellious intentions to defy our maker. We believe that if we can just tell Jesus, I'm going to hide that over here, I'm going to ignore you, that he will just do the same for us. Just ignore us. So in a very real sense, when we reject him, we're telling him, Don't look at me. Since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been telling God to look away while doing wrong. When God came walking in the garden to find Adam and Eve, he finds them and he says, where are you? Adam replies by saying, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid and so I hid. Don't look at me, God. I want to hide from you. After the truth of Tiger Woods' affairs and sexual addictions were clearly exposed, he stated that he believed that he was above the rules of society. That he could do whatever he wanted to do because he was a professional golfer and athlete. And he could create the rules for himself. You see, he created a kind of alternate reality that he was living in. But that alternate reality ultimately resulted in utter chaos and disorder that eventually destroyed his marriage. But let's not put Tiger Woods under the bus completely because that dynamic of trying to create an alternate reality that we can just kind of hide out is the dynamic that exists in our hearts as well. For a short time, we might be able to think that we can get away with having our sinful deeds done in darkness, stay in the darkness. 
we can just kind of hide out there for a while. The truth is, though, that nothing that is done in secret stays in the secret. At one point, the light of the world will expose what's done, either here now or on Judgment Day. What's done in secret never stays in secret. I think that if we peel back the layers of people just rejecting Jesus, that's what we'd see. Humanity telling God, don't look at me. Verses 10 and 11 are really very difficult verses to swallow. Jesus, the man who was sent on mission from God to bring salvation to a rebellious humanity, one that is drenched in sin, enslaved to it, is rejected. The final result of that rejection is eternal condemnation. And so the light of the world that brings salvation divides the world into two major categories. First, those that will reject him, hide in the shadows. Second, then, there are those who will hear how absolutely terrible their sin is. And at the same time, how great a Savior Jesus is and will respond with faith and receive him. Listen again to verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 12 begins with a simple word, but a great word, the three-letter word, but. That word is probably one of the most powerful words in the human language. It has the power to change everything, especially coming after such bad news. Your son was in a car wreck, but he's fine. You have cancer, but it's treatable. Your house was on fire, but no one was hurt. Verses 12 and 13 immediately soften the sweeping rejection of Jesus and give us a glimmer of hope that there are some who will respond rightly to this man, Jesus. The right response for when the light of the world breaks into our lives is to receive him for who he is. To receive him for all those wonderful things that verses 1 and 3 describe for us. And then to allow his light to penetrate what we think about, what we desire, and what we do. Receiving Jesus means that you welcome into your life for who he is, and so he comes to us as Savior, and we welcome his salvation. He comes to us as provider and protector, and we welcome his provision and protection. He comes to us as counselor, and we welcome his counsel. He comes to us as authority, and we submit to him He comes to us as our king, and we say, you are the king. You rule rightly. Receiving him means taking him into your life for who he is and for what he is. It does not mean a kind of peaceful coexistence with the Christ who makes no claim on your life. As though Jesus can just kind of live in the basement of your life as long as he doesn't play his music too loud or he doesn't make much of a fuss. You just stay down there. 
You know, when Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, what we read there is that, that when his words were pleasing to the people, they were receiving him gladly. But also when Jesus turns a table on them and points out their pride, they reject him and they really want to throw him off of a cliff. Jesus makes some pretty cool radical claims on our lives. Following him is not for the weak-hearted. It's not for those who want comfort. It's not for those who want fame or fortune. His radical call on our lives is to abandon everything to him. And ultimately to die for him. The pattern of the Christian life is the pattern of the cross. Crucifying ourselves. Following after him. Receiving Jesus may mess up your plans for a comfortable life in the suburbs of Chicago. He may at one point in your life ruffle your feathers just a little bit because he won't settle for anything less than complete dominance in your life. But according to verse 12, it's worth it. It is worth receiving him in this way because it impacts the eternal condition of your soul. Pay close attention to verse 12 with me. Those that receive Jesus and believe in him are given the right by God to become a child of God. Now what this means is that the person who receives Jesus as opposed to rejecting him has been born again. They have been regenerated. They have been spiritually resuscitated from the dead. Born again. According to the research done by the Barna Group, about 45% of Americans claim the label born-again Christian. 45%. I think, though, that if we ask Jesus, who's born again? He might say, fewer than you think, actually. Now, the reason for those differing answers is in understanding what it means biblically to be born again. You see, many people claim the title but fail to grasp what it means. For example, the media has often used this term of born again to identify a group of people who have a particular political or cultural affinity with one another. So in a grossly overstated statement... Every single Republican is born again. Well, that may not be true. A few weeks ago at the pool, I saw a person wearing a t-shirt that said, Jesus votes Republican. And I just had to laugh to myself. You see, we've messed up, we misunderstand what it means to actually be born again. Because the Bible's definition of being born again actually has nothing to do with politics. Instead, it is used to describe a person who has been spiritually awakened by God, bringing them from spiritual death to spiritual life, and enabled then by God to respond and to receive Jesus by faith. Verse 13 also goes one more step and explains to us that being born again would have never been tied to physical birth or ethnic descent. 
which would have been big things for the Jewish people. So he says there, it's not of blood. You can't just be born into someone's family line and expecting that you too are born again. Just because we're born into good Christian families doesn't mean we are born again. It's also not connected into any human effort. That is, it is not the result of the will of the flesh or the will of man. You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. You cannot do enough good deeds to gain it. The emphasis in verse 13 is to make it clear that being born again is a mysterious act of God that no one can claim by its own effort. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is this. Through the Holy Spirit, God illuminates our hearts and our minds to understand the gospel message and then he produces faith or there only was unbelief before that. You see, we can't even claim ownership of our faith. Faith is a spirit-induced response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we ever consciously embrace the person of Jesus and Lord as Savior, it is given to us by God himself. He enables us to understand our need for him and it enables us then to respond and receive him. Otherwise, we're still stuck in verses 10 and 11, rejecting him. You see, verses 12 and 13 are so important because they tell us what the right response is to Jesus and then how it's even possible for us to respond this way, to receive him into our lives. I want to fix a question in your mind this morning. Not everyone is a child of God. Am I? Ask yourself that question right now. Not everyone is a child of God. Are you? The light of the world divides the world. You're either a child of God or you are still a slave to sin. There's no middle ground. No third option. If you are a child of God, then you become an heir of all that God owns. All that belongs to God is in your inheritance. Eternal pleasures and treasures are in store for you when you pass from this life into the next. Until that time, my encouragement to you is to continue to walk in the light. As he is in that light. And by so doing, allowing the light of the gospel to shine into areas of your life that you have not yet let him have control over. If you're still hiding in the shadows, still enslaved to sin, well, I implore you this morning to come into the light of God's redeeming love. You know, you may not see his love for you. And you may be telling him this morning, don't look at me. But be assured that he sees you. And more than just seeing you, he actually wants you. You may feel that because of your evil deeds, your your sin that you did maybe yesterday or maybe way in your past has put you out of his reach You may feel this morning like used goods, 
like nobody wants you, including God himself. But the redeeming nature of the gospel is clear. God wants you. And he is more than enough for you. And so if, you, if you're here this morning and you feel like you're saying to him, don't look at me, trying to hide out in the shadows of your life, creating an alternate reality. Well, you're here this morning and, and he's breaking into your life. The light of the gospel shining forth in the person of Jesus. And I encourage you, do not resist the work of the Spirit in your life. He's calling you to come into the light. Receive him and allow him then to lead you out of your slavery, out of the shadows. Well, verses 1 to 3 are, are like a wrecking ball. Verses 4 to 13 are a bit like a very sharp sword, slicing all of humanity into two groups. Those that will reject him and those that will receive him. This morning, after the service, there'll be a couple people up front. And if you're in that category of, of someone who's not received Jesus and you want to talk to somebody about how you do that or how you come into the light of the gospel, we'd love to have a conversation with you and talk with you about that. Don't leave this morning without doing some business Letting these scriptures examine your heart. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world. You gave him for us so that we could be the righteousness Christ before you. Lord, no doubt there are some here this morning that, that need to come into the light of the gospel. Some here this morning may be rejecting you. And so I pray, Lord, that if there's people here this morning who fall into that category, that they would see the immensity of your love and be drawn to the light and come and receive forgiveness and redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.